Well, we're continuing on our sermon series, Salt and Light. And the challenging question is, how can we be the salt of the earth, the light of the world? Because as we look at the life of Jesus, that's exactly who he was and what he did. And we're, we are going to be looking at the life of Jesus. And uh, so this, uh, some of you have, have seen the movie Hexall Ridge. Private, I'm not going into details, no, but Private Desmond Doss had a very strong conviction, and, and there's a number of reasons apart from his uh, religious affiliation. He's a, he's a Christian man. Uh, if you've seen the movie, okay, we, we watch it, of, co of course, on clear play. And, but the truth is that God used this man, and, and he was in a situation where he wanted to sign up to in, in enlisting for World War II and serve his country, and he, he did not want to stay behind. He wanted to be able to serve, and so he signed up as a medic. And it was a difficult decision, but he, he, he chose to not even touch a gun. And the backstory is laid out for us as far as why. His dad was a drunk, and he almost killed him one time. He had a gun in his hand, and he took the gun from him and, and was ready to shoot him. And he just made a promise, God, from now on, I will never touch a gun. Now, whether I agree or you agree with his convictions or not is beside the point because many times as we're studying through the scriptures and we hold to certain convictions, it, the conviction basically says, for Jesus' sake, this is what I'm doing. Whether it completely aligns with the word or not, the truth is he made a decision. Romans 14 says, one man treats one day above the others, another treats all days alike. And so here's a man, and, and he, he was a pacifist. He was a conscientious objector, and he goes into it. And, and the men, there's a scene in which they beat him up. And because they're afraid, if you don't touch a gun, how are you going to protect me? If I need you to, and you're working on me, and, and an, an enemy comes, are, are you going to shoot him? And he basically said that I will not. Now, they beat him up. They were angry with him. But I tell you what, when they reach Hacksaw Ridge and they're trying to take that ridge, they, they gain some ground, but now at night they go down and he stays up there. And the statistics are that he rescued 75 people. And if, you, if you've ever, if you're aware of how he had to do that, he had to put a rope around them and lower them probably 200 feet to the ground, every single one of those 75 people. He was declared a hero because of what he did. Those 75 men should have died on Hacksaw Ridge, and he rescued them. And there's one particular scene that is just so powerful. And, and when the man, before he passed away in 2006, he was interviewed, and he, he said this, and, and he repeated the words that are actually in the movie. And when he's on the top of that ridge and he's lowering them by the, by the rope, he says, one more, Lord. Give me one more. One more, Lord. Give me one. Every time he lowered a man, one more. God, give me one more. And his heart was to rescue them. And, and I want to ask you a question this morning. Is that our heart? Is it our heart to rescue this generation? It's not like a notch in our belt. Yep, got one. But Lord, one more. Lord, give me one more. 
Lord, one more to build your kingdom. One more, Lord. Let me touch one more life. That was the cry of his heart, to rescue a, a, a soldier that was ready to die on the battlefield. And if we could just have that very same heart as we look out over our generation, that the Bible says that they're dead in their sins. And, and, and I was there. I had rebelled against God. God called me his enemy. He didn't treat me as his enemy. He loved me. And he wooed me and he called me to himself, just like he called so many of you, to become his child and receive this inheritance that he gives to all those who trust in Jesus Christ. So may that be our heart. As we are seeking to be salt and light, one more, Lord. Let me touch one more. One more, Lord. Let me touch one more life. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14. And, and before I get into the 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 heart and soul of the sermon, I want us to kind of catch this vision that Jesus is sharing. He had just touched a young woman, a Samaritan woman, at a well, and he used that opportunity to be able to reach into her life, and it's, it's, it's as if he turned a light bulb on. I'm not going to get into that story, but I do want to share with you what he says when his disciples arrive on the scene. And they ask him, could someone have brought him, they ask him, um, that offering him food, and he, he talks about the food that he is already eating, and they're wondering, oh my goodness, has someone already given him food? Well, I didn't think Meals on Wheels worked out this way. But he goes on, let me read to you in verse 34, my food, and he's just beginning to explain what he means, because he's using the word food figuratively. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, there's a hunger that Jesus had to do the will of the Father, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, and to touch people's lives. We're going to look at some examples here later, but that was, Je that was Jesus' food. He was hungry. He was thirsty to do the will of the Father. May that be the heart may we be, that we have, that may we be hungering to do the will of the Father. Well, he goes on, and he says this. He says, do you not say four more months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. Church, today, can we open our eyes? I think it's really easy to try and be the salt and the light of the world and to not see more souls impacted. And I know my heart aches for that. That many times, I mean, as a church, we have shared the gospel with hundreds and hundreds of people door to door at parks and just sharing Christ with them. And so many turned away and they, they just, they said, no, okay. But church, you still need to know the harvest, Jesus says, open your eyes because the harvest is what it is. It's ripe. He says, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. That means he's done and he's already, he's already getting paid. People are already coming to the truth is what he's beginning to say. And even now, excuse me, he says the, the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may, have, may be glad together. That's the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. See, there were 
many, John the Baptist, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, others. There were other righteous men in that generation proclaiming, follow God, pursue him, not the law. Pursue him, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But now he says, others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And can I say this? Number one, that the harvest is ripe now, regardless of the resistance of men and women's hearts, that one sows and another reaps. And many times, we are the ones who are sowing. But there are times, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I want to do some reaping. But what if, what if my life is so filled with just sowing? Are you going to give up because you don't see the people change? They're impacted, surrendering their hearts to Christ. Are we just going to give up? Think about John the Baptist. He got killed for standing on truth and just simply calling people to repentance. He didn't give up. There were times, though, in which he had questions, and Jesus understood that. But he did not give up. The one who sows, Jesus says, does the hard work. I'm not saying that reaping and, and sharing the gospel, and then finally someone just gets it. And at that moment, their hearts are changed as they reach out in faith and say, yes, I will follow Jesus. But many times we are caught up in sowing and being the light of the earth and the, being the salt of the earth and the light of the world many times consists of just the sowing, just the sowing, so much sowing. And understand, we sow, we plant, we water, but God is the one who brings the increase. And praise God if you have that opportunity and you get to be with someone and they're surrendering their heart to Christ. Amen. I mean, th that is, that's joyful. But sowing is the hard work. And we are not to give up. And many times we can get a bit disillusioned. And we're wondering, is the harvest really ripe? Under harvest, is it? I wonder, Jesus said, yes, it is. Listen to that. Yes, it is, church. Keep sowing. God bless you if you have opportunity to reap. But this is what we are called to because the harvest is white under harvest. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. You know, without the sowing, there is no reaping. However God uses you sowing or reaping, can you be content and just continue to be salt? And light, serving him only to do his will, which according to verse 34 is that like that food. That's what we're hungering for. I just want to do whatever God calls me to do. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're, we're talking about salt and light last week. Actually, it was two weeks ago. I, I preached a sermon, remember Talenta, and God uses our, or we use our talents when God gives us opportunities and resources. And so last week, we looked at one of those resources, a house. And we just used it as an example, but we looked at throughout the book of Luke, and we looked in other places, the early church, and how people, how they just used their home, and widows used their home, and just to be able to reach out. And it said that in, in Acts chapter 2, that because they simply used their home to open it up and bless people, used that resource that God had given them, and they were good and faithful, right? It says, and people were added to the number daily, those who were being saved. They had actually found favor in a culture that had just a few weeks earlier crucified their Lord. 
God was doing something in their generation because they were using the resources. There's other resources that God had blessed them with, and we actually see it in the book of Acts. But today, I want to talk about the opportunity. Last week was resources. I want us to look at, there's so many opportunities. I'm kind of just cherry-picking a few of them, a very few of them. And I want us to see, what did Jesus do? What did the early church do? What are we called to do? Colossians 4, turn with me there if you would. I want us to look at a phrase. It's a little bit of an odd phrase. And so as a result, the NIV and the NASB translate it uh, not literally. And I want us to look at at, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses verses 5 and 6. Remember, Paul is in prison right now. That is Paul's opportunity, if you will. He's under house arrest in Rome, and he sees it as an opportunity. He's actually praying, pray that God would give me boldness and clarity to proclaim the gospel. So I want to use these opportunities, even though it's a tragic opportunity, being in prison, I'm going to use it to advance God's kingdom. So he says, pray for me. And he says here in verses 5 and 6, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make your conversation, excuse me, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. So the idea of salt here is not so much in action, but it's in words. But there's a phrase that's used in verse 4 that's not translated literally. It's translated, make the most of every opportunity. In the Greek, it's literally two words, redeem the time. Redeem the time. Why would Paul say redeem? Because the redeem means buy. It means purchase. So, hey, guys, I want you to go out this coming week, and I want you to buy some time. How do you do that? How much does it cost, right? But see, that's not his point. And so the NIV and ASB translate it the way I think it's to be understood. But why, where did that expression come from? What does it even mean? I want you to consider something as far as redeeming the time. One second. Redeem obviously means purchase. But when you redeem something, it will always cost you something. It's impossible to redeem something and it not cost you something because you're bartering. You are giving something in exchange for something. You are giving time. You are sacrificing. And so that it right there is my point. I believe it's Paul's point. You know what, church? If you are going to take these opportunities, part of the talenta that God gives you as a follower of Jesus and use him to be salt and light, it's going to cost you something. When you see the opportunities, the time, the moment he gives you, it's going to cost you something. So there is sacrifice. So I want to ask then, how can we redeem those times, those moments, those kairos moments, those opportunities to advance his kingdom and be salt and light. How do we do that? I want to look at an example that Jesus gives us, and it's actually in Luke chapter 6. So go ahead and turn there with me if you would. Luke chapter 6, excuse me, Luke chapter 7. 
I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. Now, the first two words in my English Bible in verse 11 is soon afterward. So that tells me, even though the Gospels are not necessarily laid out in chronological order, all of the stories are not necessarily chronological. And we need to realize this, but this is. So what I'm about to read to you shortly follows, not long after, follows Jesus' healing of the centurion's servant. The man eventually sent, he sends people to Jesus, a delegation, hey, can you come? And then he sends his friends and he says, you know what, you're a Jew. Just right where you're at, wherever his friends are meeting Jesus, he just, he says, just speak the word and I believe that my servant will be healed. Jesus doesn't have to come into his house because Jews generally did not do that because the man was of Gentile. He did not need to lay hands on the man who, on the servant that was sick. And he says, Jesus, all you have to do, all I'm asking is speak the word. And Jesus is amazed. What, a, what great faith this Gentile has that Jesus, all he would need to do is speak the word and the, his servant is healed. And, and the centurion says, well, I, I get this idea of authority. You just have to speak it. And because he believed Jesus had authority, it would happen. And the servant is healed. And shortly after this, it says that a crowd is following Jesus now. A large crowd. So pick up with me, Luke 7, verse 11, excuse me, Luke chapter 7, verse 11, and it says this, soon afterward. Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, so it's got a wall and a gate, as he approached the gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, which means her husband had died, and now her only son has died. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. That's the Greek word translated generally and simply, he had compassion, okay? He has compassion. His heart goes out to her, and he says, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and freak everybody. Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. And, and, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Wherever they were going, church, they turned around. Because that is the power and the authority of Jesus. They were all filled with awe and praised God. What did Jesus say in his Sermon on the Mount? You're the light of the world. And he goes on to say that um, when shine your light so that others may see your good works 
and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus is setting the way here. And we're going to need to dig into this a little bit. It feels a bit intimidating. I mean, my goodness, Jesus raised someone from the dead. Like, that happens to me like every day, right? No. Let's, let's bring this home. We're going to need to do that. So what do they do? It says right here, it says they, they filled with awe and they praised God. And this is what they say. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Let's understand that there is a large crowd that is following Jesus. If you were to describe that crowd, what kind of words would you use? Interested? Anticipating. I mean, they just saw a miracle. Anticipating. Full of faith. Having tremendous suspicions, if not full faith. This Jesus, he's the guy. He's the one Moses prophesied about being the prophet. He's the Messiah that Isaiah so strongly preached about 700 years ago. Yes. And they're, they're curious. They want to find out what's he going to do next. And they're filled with faith. And as they're walking along, they come to a city with, by the name of Nain. And it appears as if they're going to stop in Nain. Now, before I go any further, let's understand something. Jesus said that he does only what he sees the Father doing. And he says only what he hears the Father saying. Okay? Jesus's, Jesus was completely reliant upon the Father. Even though he was God in the flesh, he had surrendered certain glories, and he needed to completely rely upon the Father and the Spirit by which he did miracles, by which he raised this person from the dead. That was by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus had surrendered that in becoming man and found himself completely reliant upon the Father. Church, just like you and I. Just like you and I. And he has this intimate relationship with the Father. So I'm going to guess that before he approaches the gate, and I don't know how this works. Scripture never tells us. But somehow the father had communicated his will to his son. And we just read, what was doing the will of the father like for Jesus? Eating food. Because he was hungry. He was hungry to do the will of the father. And I'm going to suggest, since he only did what he saw the father doing, which means raising this dead man from the dead, that he saw the father doing that. Now, again, I don't know how the father and the son did this. However, it doesn't matter. The father revealed his will. Jesus was going to do it. Maybe it happened at the very moment that he walked up to this, this coffin. Regardless, a crowd is now coming out of the city carrying the coffin. And I'm going to suggest, you know, it's not like up here. He's probably just right here. He's carrying the coffin. It does not have a lid. When Jesus touches the coffin, they didn't suddenly see the lid. Oh, oh, this isn't Dracula that's coming to life. Okay, I'm just kidding. The, the truth, though, is that there's no lid. 
The degree to which there's walls, we don't know. But people can see him when he sits up, so you know. It's like an open casket he is here. And that crowd that comes out of the city is like the total opposite of the crowd that's following Jesus. They're in despair. Church, here's a woman. At some point in her life, she lost her husband, which was hard enough to be able to provide for the family. Now her only son dies. What is Jesus going to do? Can I just ask you a question? By a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to a funeral? Raise your hands. You've ever been to a funeral? Raise your hands high. You've ever been to a funeral? Okay. That would be, I believe that's every single one of us. Do you think Jesus had ever been to a funeral? Do you think maybe Jesus had been to a few, including his own death? Very probably. Jesus, according to the Gospels, we have record of him healing or raising from the dead like three people. Three people. He did not raise his dad from the dead. When he went to a funeral service, he did not raise that person from the dead. Now, I I don't have answers for that. Why? But all I can say is, It just was not the Father's will. So here's Jesus. He's walking along. Maybe this is the first time in which he raised someone from the dead. Okay? And if we take Luke chronologically, then it would be. But he's walking along. And who does he speak to first? Does Does he touch the coffin first? He walks up to the mom. And he says to her, don't cry. And what is, what's going on in Jesus? Jesus, number one, I want you to know, Jesus is seizing an opportunity. And before I get into the other things that we observe, in this opportunity, it was unique. Only because there were many funerals he had been to, and this is the one now in which he raises him from the dead. And I want you to consider what type of opportunities. See, most people that are healed by Jesus come to him. That's not the case here. Jesus sees an opportunity, sees it, and then seizes it. Do you see? There was a lot of seeing in that, wasn't there? So Jesus, he, he, he's encountering this opportunity, and he says, okay, I'm going to do something now. In 1830 in England, a, an outbreak of cholera began to spread around Bristol and surrounding towns. When it was all said and done, the statistics say 52,000 people had died from cholera. 52,000. 52,000 people. Apparently, it had gotten into the drinking water because they did not always separate their water from when they, we would say, used the toilet. And cholera had spread through their drinking water. 52,000 had died. 
There was a man in Bristol who saw this as an opportunity because with 52,000 dying, there were thousands of orphans on the street. Many of them were having to go to the workhouse, which was a horrible place that the person there was generally a taskmaster and there were no child labor laws. So consequently, it was extremely difficult and the rest of them were on the street like Oliver Twist, which was written about this time. Stealing as a profession. That's what they grew up with, doing. A man by the name of George Mueller said, you know what? My heart goes out to these people, and I want to seize this opportunity. And so he takes 30 girls into his home. I want you to imagine our home. And I said to Meredith, you know what? Let's just bring in 30 girls, 30 young little girls, and let's just house them and feed them. And, and she's probably going to think, yeah, why not? And, and she's probably already raising, okay, we can sleep three in this room and three in this room and five in this room. And, and she's probably got it all mapped out in her mind. And it's, it's going to be a bit chaotic, but we are giving ourselves to helping these little girls because we don't want them out on the street and we don't want them in the workplace, the workhouses. And so we bring 30 young ladies into our house. And the ministry begins to grow in, in bringing in orphans so that the neighbors start saying, hey, Mike, according to the laws here, these are this is like a single family residence, right? And I, I'm sure that all 30 of these don't belong to you. What's up with this? And so with George Bristol, the neighbors began to complain. And... The government is going to shut them down. And he's, he's walking through a field, and God just like opens his eyes, and he realizes this field is for sale. And God just imparts a little vision in his heart. We'll build, we could build orphanages here. The man who owned the property decided to sell it to him for half the price that he was asking for. And he was basically giving it to him. Eventually, Five buildings were built on that land. And during this time of George Mueller's ministry with orphans, he was able to house 10,000 children. 10,000 children. I'm going to tell a little bit more of that story later. But I want you to see how he saw an opportunity. Actually, it would be pretty hard to miss it. But he was filled with faith, and he had a policy. I'm not going to ask money from anyone ever, ever. And we're just going to pray and trust God to provide. That is a step of faith. Wow. He sees an opportunity. I, I just want you, church, open your eyes. Just like Jesus, he's walking by. They didn't bring the dead person to him. He was walking by, and it's a pretty obvious opportunity I mean, we do not ever know of Jesus walking into morgues and just seeing that as his full-time ministry and raising people from the dead. But what, here is a woman, and I want you to understand her need. She's a widow. And, and his mother was a widow. Jesus' mother was a widow. But Jesus also had several other brothers, not just himself, who could take good care of his mom. But this woman, she had no one, no one. And it says Jesus had compassion 
His mom was a widow. And he's probably thinking, maybe in a brief moment, what if all of her sons died? And the father showed him, I want you to raise this young man from the dead. Whew, can you imagine? And Jesus walks up, he puts, he says to the woman, don't cry. She's probably thinking, wow, does this guy have a callous heart, right? Don't cry. I mean, this is my only son. If he only knew, I can imagine that there was talk. I mean, how else would Jesus know this was his only son? But he walks up then to the casket, to the coffin, and he touches it. And knowing the Father's will, then he speaks a command. And the command is very simply this, get up. Get up. Now, the whole thing is, young man, I say to you, get up. A very simple command. And the man, young man suddenly sits up. And as I was jokingly reading, freaks everybody out. I mean, if I were there, it would freak me out. And then the mom finally understands that's why he said, don't cry. But now can you imagine the joy that has flooded her heart? Oh, my goodness. What joy. What joy. Jesus has compassion on her. I'm just going to tell you, church. So first, he, he seizes the moment. He seizes the opportunity. Secondly, he has compassion. I'm just going to tell you this right now. That if our hearts are not filled with compassion, we will miss these opportunities. We'll just miss them. They'll go right by us, and at the end of the day, or maybe at the end of our life, we will realize, wow, there were just so few opportunities you gave me, Lord. So I, I just want to tell you, if the fields are ripe and white unto harvest, do you not think that God would be giving us many opportunities? But he, here's the understanding. You have to first perceive, and as you pray, seek to understand what the Father's will is. Don't go out doing stuff that's not the Father's will. And so you have to pray. You have to pray. Maybe in Jesus' quiet time, first thing in the morning, that's when the Father revealed to him, hey, you're going to be going to Nain. And when you do, I, I don't know. But I can tell you this. The son was constantly seeking and perceiving the Father's will. Can I just tell you that if there is little compassion in your heart, maybe because of so many hurts from your past, Maybe because of so many disappointments, I don't know. Can I tell you a remedy for that? Start praying for people. I could go around this room. I could just go one after the other. And I know you well enough to know the need. I'm not going to call it out. But you know, we, we've got a, a single mom over here who, who's by herself. And so the church does what we can for Mickey Lana to help her. Okay? And right behind her, Leanne. Leanne's husband, I won't get into describing, but the, the truth is we understand Leanne's situation. And you're turning 70 when? Already 70, my bad. So you just turned 70. 
and the housing market is down, and Leanne has a real estate business trying to sell houses. So I want to tell you what, we pray for Leanne constantly, and we seek to serve her. But as you do that, as you understand the people's needs, as you're praying for one another, you will not be able to help it, church. Your heart will be filled with compassion. Because when you start focusing on people's needs other than your own, your heart goes out to them and it starts breaking for them. That's just the nature of how God, even an unbeliever, their heart eventually, I'm not sure they would pray, but their heart will break when they're seeing needs. I mean, even Hollywood gets that. And, and that's why in the movies, they know how to tug people's heartstrings. Needs, insurmountable needs, needs in which there's just no way something can happen and then, boom, something does. And you know, even Hollywood gets it. Everybody experiences this. We're no different. But you know what? As you are praying for everyone, each person, your neighbors, the people at work, see, that's why it's so important to know the people so you know how to pray for them as you're getting to know them. They share their needs. You're praying for them. And your heart is filled with compassion. And, and when your heart is filled with compassion, church, you're going to be much more sensitive to these opportunities that come your way. Your radar is going to be up. And Jesus is absolutely what? Now, it, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist or someone just utterly so overwhelmingly filled with compassion to see the need here. It's pretty obvious. But Luke makes it a point to tell us that Jesus was filled with compassion. The third thing that I want us to see here. Jesus, of course, seizes the opportunity. His heart is filled with compassion. And then Jesus speaks with authority. Now, understand that for us, and we're speaking with authority. It's not going to be in our own name. It's going to be in whose name, church? Jesus' name. That's why he says, young man, I say to you. Now, if I were in Jesus' place, I would, I would say, young man, in Jesus' name. Because God has made me his son. He's, he's made me born again as his child. And he has given to me his authority to be exercised according to his will, okay? Let me give you an example. And, and I'm going to share, well, let me give you this example. In Acts chapter 9, Peter is brought to, uh, I, I believe it's Joppa, I'm trying to remember the exact city name, and Dorcas, a widow who had served so many people, had passed away. Now, I don't know if she was young, we don't necessarily know her age, but she was so well-loved, and maybe she, there was like maybe 40 or something, but it's as if, hey, this is not her time. And they go get Peter, and Peter comes, and he goes into the room in which she's laying down. He closes the door, and he prays. What do you think he is doing at that moment? See, he is seeking the Father's will. He is seeking to be filled with faith. God, I want to do your will, whatever it is. And if it is not God's will to raise her from the dead, then I'm going to pray otherwise. But show me, Father, help me perceive and understand your will and then what you want me to do. And I'm going to suggest that when he was in prayer, the Father showed him, 
I want you to raise her from the dead. So after he prays, the book of Acts tells us that he got up and spoke to her, and he said, Tabitha, her name in Hebrew, arise. Really simple. He speaks a command, and it is filled with faith, and she comes to life. She is raised from the dead. Now, can I be honest with you? I have never been led to command someone to be raised from the dead, praying that I've not missed an opportunity. But the truth is, Jesus could do that through you. I have seen, as I have prayed, as others have prayed over people, I've seen them healed instantly. Some of you have testimonies to that effect. Healed instantly. Praise God. God doesn't always work that way. I wish he would, but the truth is, God will. God wants us to pray and seek his will and act on that will. And it may not always be to raise someone from the dead, but it was for Jesus. It was for Peter. As we perceive these opportunities, we seek to then act in faith, speak the word. Years and years ago, I won't tell you how long ago because, anyway, it was a long time ago. I was in seminary. One of my professors was an Episcopal priest. Loved Jesus with all of his heart. Believed and preached the gospel. Very practical type of professor. He told his class, I was in the class, and he told us that there was a time in which he was asked to uh, help minister alongside of several others in a crusade in Africa. He's not making this story up. That would never be his nature. He was, he was a straight arrow. Loved the Lord. Never would lie. And he tells us he, all the speakers had been asked to sit on the stage. And it, when it was their turn, they came up and they preached. And there's thousands and thousands of people. People are coming from all over the nation to this crusade. What an amazing opportunity for him to be able to proclaim the gospel like this. Now, let me back up for just a moment. A couple of days before he's sitting on that stage, a woman who lived hundreds of miles away. Something happens with her little girl. I can't remember how exactly it happened, but her little girl died. Several days before this moment, she knows that there's going to be a crusade, and something is stirred up in her. Now, this is a bit freaky, forgive me, but she took her daughter and rolled her up in a carpet and picked her up. She boarded a bus. She walked. It took a few days. She got to the crusade. And this is what happened. My professor said, Mike, or, or to the class, I was sitting on stage, and I've never seen anything like this. And the lady walks up with her little girl and lays her on the stage. And they're looking, what is, what is this? And she says, this is my little girl. And she died several days ago. Can you please pray for her? And, and I tell you what, this professor's faith was tested. And as they're seeking, okay, God, what is your will in this? And one by one, the speakers began to gather around. And they agreed God wants us to pray. And as they're praying, they command her to come to life. And that little girl unraveled that carpet, and she came to life. 
And as my professor is looking at this, it changed his life. It's like, this is the power of God. This is not just some little freaky thing. that th- this, this is the power of God, and he raised her from the dead. And I want to tell you what. He made sure he got the story straight from this. You, know, Do you really mean to tell me that she died? So, yes, and this is when we did this. And, and what else was I to do? I only knew to bring her here. And her little girl's now standing next to her. God had totally healed her. See, that is compassion. It's seizing an opportunity. And it is speaking a word of faith, which means authority. You have been given authority. And I'm not saying that tomorrow you're going to be raising a dead person. I'm not saying that. That would seriously test my faith, church. It really would. And if God told me to do that, he would understand. He would have to make it like super, 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 super clear for me to do that. But there are other opportunities, so many opportunities for us to speak a word, for us to act on faith when we see the opportunity and our heart is being welled up with compassion to step out and just do something. Pray. Perceive the Father's will. Speak and act in faith and authority. That's what he's called us to do. That's how we are to take these opportunities and make the most of them. Well, there was George Mueller. I share with you his policy that he would never ask for help. He would only pray. And one morning, when he got up and it was time for breakfast, he was told, Pastor Mueller, there, there's, there's no breakfast. We have nothing. We have nothing to eat. We have nothing to drink for the children. And so here's what George Mueller did. He gathered all the children together. They sat down around all of their tables as they did every day. And there was no food set before them. And he prayed a blessing upon the food. He prayed a blessing and thanksgiving to God for the food with nothing there before them, nothing in the kitchen. And this is completely well documented, by the way. He gets a knock at the door, and the baker says, I just felt this morning when I got up, God told me to bake extra bread, and I was supposed to bring it here. So here it is, and it was enough to feed the children. But it doesn't stop there. See, the milkman was pulling his cart. Listen, church. It broke down right in front of the orphanage. Right in front of the orphanage. The wheel had busted. The milkman said, honestly, for me to call someone out here and get this wheel fixed, by the time it's fixed, the milk is spoiled. So he knocks on the door and he says to Pastor Mueller, I have a bunch of milk. Can you guys use it? And they had plenty of food, plenty of milk to drink that morning. That was an act of faith. That is seizing an opportunity. Church, we we are laboring in a field of people who don't know Jesus or many who know him here but not here. And there are so many opportunities. May we see these opportunities as we are filled with compassion and praying for the lost 
thank you for you who gather every, every evening at 7 o'clock and you pray for that half hour for the needs in the church, for opportunities, for revival. Well, if you want to see revival, let's get these principles down. And as opportunity, we're praying for people, praying for people, allowing God to fill our hearts with compassion so that when we see the opportunity, we're saying, God, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do? And then instantaneously we pray. And sometimes it is just seconds before we have to act. God's quick enough to answer that question of yours, what do I do? And he can show you. Sometimes we're just not quite sure. All you have to do, church, do you not realize that your father knows the questions that we have and sometimes we can't hear his voice clearly? He understands that. He is simply calling you to pray and seek to understand his will as best you can and then seize the opportunity. Act, speak in faith. And let God do the rest. I want to tell you what, if, if we can do that, we are going to be salt and light in this generation and impact people everywhere. Does that beat in your heart, church? Does that beat in your heart? It beats in mine. And I, and I labor in prayer every day. God, please, whatever you have to do for me to redeem, meaning sacrifice, redeem the time, redeem every opportunity, then God, that's what I want. Can you stand with me, church? May God grant us his heart and the compassion that we need, the faith that we need to do just this, to do the Father's will. Father, we come before you and, and asking that whatever you need to do in every single one of our hearts, would you please do this? We want to be men and women of compassion and who can see opportunities clearly and men and women of faith and willing to speak and act with all authority that you've given to us in Jesus' name. And I just ask you, Father, please, whatever you need to do in our hearts, we welcome that. Whatever sacrifice we need to do, Father, we're willing to make it. Please, Father, do something amazing. As your servants, as we're saying, God, our hearts are yielded to you. Thank you. Thank you, God. Amen.